Father, thank you for the extraordinary way that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that in a room like this with all kinds of people in all kinds of places who have had good weeks and bad weeks, who follow you and perhaps don't yet claim to follow you, that you speak to us. So we pray that we might hear your voice this morning. We thank you for this letter. Thank you for its relevance, for the contemporary nature with which it speaks to us. Please soften our hearts, we pray. Amen. Okay, so think Lord of the Rings. Think the ring itself, the one ring to rule them all. And what do you have? You have something that corrupts people. It takes desires and it expands them and it amplifies them and it magnifies them. But it corrupts people. So some in the book want to do good things. They want to preserve their people's land. They want to execute justice on wrongdoers. They, they want to free people in slavery. But, but when the ring comes near, then it means they will do anything to achieve those things. The, the good thing becomes the absolute thing. And nothing else matters anymore. And the longer you have the ring, the more it owns you. The more you become increasingly addicted and enslaved. And of course, it's a difference of degrees. But but what we see in the ring, we see in real life. We're, we're a people who are driven by what we love. At the heart of it all, we were made to be lovers, desirers, worshippers. It's how we were wired. We were made to love God, to live with him. But when we walk out on God, when he is removed from the equation, then we don't love nothing. We love everything. And we run after those things that promise us happiness, value, worth. Contentment, joy, comfort, hope, life. And we chase them. And they own us. What is it for you? Recognition? Respect? Rest? Popularity? Power? Peace? Comfort? Stuff. Status. What is it for you? One writer put it like this, we are always actively worshipping, trusting, desiring, following, loving, or serving something or somebody. And yet you see, when we strip it right back, when we boil it right down, there are two options. We either respond to the God who made us by loving him and trusting him and so living a life in light of that or we love and trust and obey other things or other people. And why does this matter? Because I take it at the heart of this passage for this morning is that question, what do you love? What do you love in life? Before we dive in, just a brief reminder of where we've come so far. Maybe you're visiting us and we're nearly three quarters of the way through the letter. 
Where have we got to? Well, Paul is in prison, we've said. It's likely he's coming to the end of the road. Timothy, who he's writing to, is in Ephesus. He's serving the church there, and there's pressure from outside the church, people wanting to squeeze Timothy. But worse still, there's pressure from within inside the church, as Tom was telling us and the children, people teaching bad things, things that are not true. So you saw last time with Andy, Hymenaeus and Philetus have wandered off. And Paul says the thing about the gospel message is unchained. It is powerful, it is active, it is at work around the world. And yet, the Lord uses people. People who talk to other people, and others, and on, and on, and on, and on. And the thing about Ephesus, and the thing about Oxford, is it is an affluent and prosperous city. And it's just the kind of place where we can get comfortable. It's just the kind of place where our hearts can get drawn away onto other things. And so we come to that question again, what do you love? Let me read from verses 1 to 4 again. Paul says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And by the last day, he means the days after Jesus ended and before he comes back. So this is a description of our times. And what we're going to do to tackle this list is focus in on the three main loves there that I think act as three pillars at the start and the end. He he begins and he ends, he tops and tails the little section with wrong loves. I take it they are the foundational, fundamental disease and the rest of the stuff is the symptoms of that disease. Did you see them in verse 2? At the heart of it, all lovers of themselves. And again in verse 2 as well, lovers of money. And jump to the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It was Mumford and Sons who said, in these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. What happens when we invest our loves in the wrong things? What happens when our hearts are drawn after the wrong things? Well, firstly, Paul says people love themselves. It's when we put me first. The very heart of what it means to sin, at the very heart of Genesis 3, is putting me first. And it's been there ever since. I realize I've used this quote before at Maudlin Road, but I'm going to shamelessly use it again. It's from an author, American author called David Foster Wallace. He's not a believer. Described as the most intensely admired figure to emerge from his generation of writers. And he wrote this. He said, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realist, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. We're people who love self. 
Ours is a fascinating age of self. It is okay to be narcissistic. It's okay to be fixated with ourselves. We have this phenomenon called the selfie. We have people pouting into their camera phones when they are ready and looking especially good and the photo is taken on their terms. And in days gone by, we'd have taken pictures of our friends, but now we take a picture of us with our friends or a celebrity that we see and we try and get in with them. Why do we do that? And then we have self-reliance and self-improvement and self-esteem and the mirror matters so much. How am I looking today? How am I feeling about myself today? Ours is a culture of self, a culture of me first. And it's everywhere and in everything and it affects all kinds of things. Just if you read the Oxford Mail for any week, you will see that people are planning, the council is planning to build all around the area. We need more houses. Why do we need more houses? There aren't enough. Why aren't there enough houses? Well, because broadly people choose to live by themselves now. Why do people choose to live by themselves now? Have a listen to this from an American professor of sociology. He says that living alone serves a purpose. It helps us pursue sacred modern values. Individual freedom, personal control and self-realization that carry us from adolescence to our final days. Living alone allows us to do what we want, when we want, on our own terms. Sacred modern values. What we want, when we want, on our own terms. And when we love self first, rather than God first, then for us as Christians, this switch happens. We're not just me first people, we're me first Christians. Which means church, church is here to serve me. Church is about meeting my needs. It's about consuming. And God, if I'm honest, he's here to serve my needs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shape him and bend him and mould him into the kind of God I want him to be rather than the kind of God he's told me he is. going to make him the kind of God who makes me feel good, who fulfills my needs, rather than the God who challenges me and tells me what is right and wrong. Paul says in the last days people will be lovers of self. But tied in with that will be lovers of money. And how easy is it to point the finger and say, well, love of money is all around us, that's very clear. But you see, here's the striking thing about the love of money. No one really thinks it's an issue for them. Listen to this from Tim Keller, author and pastor from America. This is extraordinary. He says, some years ago I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride because nobody thinks they're greedy. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I can't recall anyone ever coming and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family and my soul and people around me. And he concludes, greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. 
And of course, it's not just as an individual, it's corporates. It's whole societies. The global economic crash from a few years ago is testament to that. People, entire economies, borrowing more than they can cope with. Because you see, if that sacred modern value is to have what I want when I want it, on my own terms, then often those things involve money. And therefore they will involve debts. And the problem with money, the problem with loving money, is that it turns our hearts. John Wesley said, whenever I have money, I get rid of it as, I get rid of it as quick as I can, lest it finds a way into my heart. We're different people. We'll affect us in different ways. Different people's hearts are affected by different ways. So some people will be wider spenders. Some of you have money and you will want to spend it because it will be pleasure and experience and fun and worth and esteem will come from what you have. Some of you will be wider savers. Money provides security and safety and confidence. We can't really not ask. If you're visiting us, this isn't for you. But if you're a regular, how do you find giving? How have you found thinking about the Irving? Thinking about whether to give, what to give. How do you make that kind of decision? Have you thought about it? Have you avoided it? Why have you done that? It's interesting, isn't it? Would our bank statements tell us that we're people who love money? Has money turned our hearts? What do you treasure? What do you love? With people who love self, people who love money, and then that links into, in verse 4, we love pleasure. Because you see, with money we can get what we want. And of course, pleasure in and of itself is not wrong. Neither of these things are. God has made an, an amazing world. A good and pleasurable world. But what's wrong is when these loves trump our love for God. And we said that in Ephesus, it's just the kind of place where you can enjoy yourself and you can enjoy pleasure. Your love for pleasure will be gratified. It won't be challenged. If, if money and comfort and nice things, if that's for you in Ephesus, then the wealth of Ephesus will serve you. The money from trade and commerce, the markets and shops, they will suit you well. Maybe sex is your thing. Historians disagree, but the Temple of Artemis... There were possible cultic prostitution associated there. And even if there wasn't, there's no doubt that when the urge arises, you can go and pay for sex with a slave. Maybe it's sport or entertainment. The Ephesians were enthusiastic for gladiatorial games. African animals fighting other animals or even fighting people. And there's even a statue of a goddess called Nike. Is culture your thing? Maybe you're a bit more highbrow. Poetry, music. Then you can happily sit amongst the crowds in the Odeon Amphitheatre. You can enjoy numerous daily performances. It can be brilliantly entertaining. And those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. In the right culture, in the right context, they are good things. They are gifts from God. Pleasure is good, but you see, when the lure of pleasure is so strong as it was in Genesis 3, then we don't think about the consequences or the effects. When pleasure is our driver in life, when everything is about me and my pleasure, then that will shape the kind of life that I live. 
It will dictate what I fill my life with. And it can ruin us forever. David Foster Wallace continues by saying this. He said, here's something else that is true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money or things, if they are where you tap meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, is one for Oxford. Being seen as smart, you will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Do you see, he gets it. What do we love? What do we worship? What are we slaves to? If underneath it all, when we're honest, we see we are driven by a love of self, of money, of pleasure, we will do all that we can to get them and our lives will reflect that. And when we don't get those things, then life looks messy. The thing about David Foster Wallace is on September the 12th, 2008, he hung himself in his garage. He knew something of what it was to love the wrong thing, to worship the wrong thing. Maybe take some time this week to consider, what is it that really drives you? What do you really love? It's a profoundly important question because it can shape our lives in all kinds of ways. So the next question you need to ask from the text is, how far will you go to get those things. Have you ever been surprised by the strength of your reaction to a situation? Maybe you look back later in the day and you think, why did I just lose it then? Why did that thing, that email, that conversation make me so angry? And you try and analyse why you react so badly to something. Maybe you're woken up at 2am by a small child with a wet bed. Maybe you get angry when someone doesn't listen to what you say. Maybe it's when your best friend buys you the most inappropriate, horrendous birthday present you can imagine. Maybe you're in a corner and you lie about a situation or you seek to pass the blame and and point at somebody else to save face. Maybe it's the way that you name drop and boast that conversation, that selfie with that minor celebrity. But have you ever sat down and wondered, why do you do that? What drives you to do that thing? Why do certain things make you react so badly? I want to suggest that it's all tied in with what we love. It's all tied in with our hearts. And those moments of anger or those outbursts or those frustrations, they show something of what's going on inside. If your weakness is a love of comfort or pleasure, then being woken up at 2 a.m. in a warm bed in a nice dream is neither comfortable nor pleasurable. 
If your weakness is a love of being loved, then your best friend buying you an inappropriate, horrendous birthday present makes you feel worthless, unknown, misunderstood. If your weakness is a love of being important, then you will name drop and you will crave attention and you will crave being valued by others. And so the list that Paul mentions between one and four, I take it is a description of what life looks like when our loves are wrong. When those key loves are challenged, that is how we react. So if we love self or money or pleasure, if that is the disease, then these things are the symptoms. People are boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited. For you, if it's all about loving self, then that will shape how you treat others, because those people are there to serve you in your love of yourself. And so life is one big ladder. And you'll do your best to promote yourself up the ladder, to big yourself up. You'll be boastful, you'll be proud, you'll be conceited, verse 2 and verse 4. And you might do your best to demote others. You'll be abusive and slanderous because that puts you higher up the ladder because you love self. Or, Or if your self, money, pleasure is threatened, then perhaps you turn unforgiving. And slanderous. You're without self-control. You're brutal even. Or maybe it's these authority structures that the Lord has given us that threaten our loves and we rebel against them. It's, it's intriguing, isn't it? Why in verse 2 is disobedience to parents there? I wonder, think self-absorbed teenager not prepared to listen to anyone or anything that seeks to spoil their fun. Loves are skewed. Loves are skewed, so verse 3, they're without love. End of verse 3, they are not lovers of the good. If, if you love self, money, pleasure, and those things drive you, then loving others can be costly. They get in the way of getting what you want, so you are without love. Why bother? If you love self, money, pleasure, people just get in the way, just ignore them. Do away with them. And then you don't really care what you love because it's all about you. You're not a lover of the good. You see, it's all around us, isn't it? Isn't this the world we live in? When our loves are muddled and the world is messy and we squabble and fight, factions come. It's everywhere. But then Paul says it's in the church. This isn't just, Timothy, be careful of those out there. This is inside. Verse 5 to 9, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, Because they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. It's not just pointing outside the church. He's talking about issues within. The world has come in. Verse 5, they have a form of godliness, but deny its power, which means, I take it, they look outwardly godly. They can play the game. They can make the right noises at the right time. But it's just outward show. It's not inward reality. 
Or, or, or they even seem keen. Look, they're busy visiting people outwardly. Inwardly, it's for their own gain. They're not lovers of God. They're lovers of pleasure and power over people. They are door-to-door religious salesmen in it for themselves. They manipulate and they deceive and they take advantage of people who are, who are gullible, who are guilty, and who never actually grasp the truth. He likens them to this couple, Janus and Jambres. Jewish tradition tells us they were the chief magicians in Pharaoh's court, the ones who initially were able to mimic the miracles of Moses. And just as they oppose Moses, so these false teachers oppose Paul, getting in, work, getting in the way of the truth. And their teaching might for a time spread like gangrene, but finally they'll be seen to be counterfeit. Their folly will be clear to everyone at the end of the day. Finally, people will see what it is they love. You can track back numerous heresies through the annals of church history, and whilst they might seem strong for a bit, they might gain some traction. Finally, they peter out. They might reappear in a new guise a hundred years later. But ultimately, their folly will be clear to everyone. We can be confident God preserves his people. He preserves his truth. So you you see, if you love the wrong thing, then your life will show that. But what is the answer? What is the answer? What is the answer to wrong loves, loves of self, money, pleasure? What is the answer to the messy life that springs from those wrong loves? Well, we'll come on to it next week. We will think about the word of God. We will think about what good teachers, godly teachers look like. But what seems clear for this week is that we need help in reorientating our loves. See the problem at the end of verse 4? They were not lovers of God. It flies in the face of our culture, but we are not meant to be a somebody. We are meant to know a somebody and to love him. And what is the answer then? How do we love this God? Well, as Tom was teaching the children, it's only in and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Only is it possible then. Only in the gospel do we offer a solution to the problem of skewed loves. Only the gospel will promise it a new birth, which means we've turned from self to unself. We've turned from being us-centered to being God-centered, and so others-centered. Do you see, when God comes first and when self is last, then we can live as we were meant to live. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it's an everyday thing, an every hour of everyday thing, because our hearts wander, and we turn back in on self again. When we love him as we were made to love him, then we can be the people who we were made to be, When our loves are in order, or so our lives are in order. Let's pray. Our Father, we find these verses very challenging. 
because they act as a mirror and so something of what our hearts are like. And so we say we need you to help us to love you because so easily we find it's possible to love other things. We confess to you our love of self, our love of money, our love of pleasure, and how little we love you. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the love that he showed to people like us. Thank you that he makes us clean on the inside. Thank you that he makes it possible for us to have new hearts that love you as we ought. Help us please daily to come back to you confessing our wrong loves. Help us please to love you as we ought. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.